he is he is taken he is thrown into the fire um and then uh, uh and we get the scene of this uh one it says who is like a son of man and he comes riding on the clouds and uh the picture is that he is the one carrying out the judgment on this great beast and he is presented before the ancient of days and he is literally given a kingdom that will last forever and uh um and everyone all nations all tongues all tribes everyone bows down and serves him and those the 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 three, first three beasts are um uh, uh are um tamed under him for a time the fourth one is completely destroyed and then we move into the interpretation because he's like what in the world does all this mean and i've given a lot of interpretation as we go but there's something interesting because in the interpretation who can tell me who is given a kingdom that will last forever and ever we have the son of man who's given the kingdom but who is given in the interpretation who is given a kingdom that will last forever and ever not the son of man The holy ones of God. The holy ones of God are given a kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Interesting. Now, that might be something, you know, that we might want to talk about and dive into um, and look at a little bit. But tonight what we're going to get into is we're going to get into this Son of Man figure. Because um, it's a controversial figure. Um, is it? It's not clicking, Sally. There we go. Um, so we are where we are in the book of Daniel is in this the 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 uh, bracket. We're at the end of the Aramaic chiasm, and um, by being at the end of the chiasm, um, and what we already talked about how we move through this, we're at the hinge of the entire book of Daniel. This point where we are is literally the hinge that holds the whole book together this is the point at which somebody's tempted to say well this seems different than everything else it can't be connected but it's exactly at this point we find out everything is connected why because we're connected back to the with the aramaic language we're connected back with these four kingdoms plus the kingdom of god we're connected back um uh with um uh uh the, the themes, the structure, and, and the language, the the whole, the chiasm itself, we're connected with that. But we're also looking forward. We're connected forward with through this apocalyptic literature. We're connected forward with a kingdom that's coming, with Israel, with the holy city, all these things. So this chapter is the center of the book. The throne room scene is the center of the center. So there's something really important going on in the throne room scene. Books are open. Evil is judged. There is one like a son of man who shares the rule of that kingdom with the saints. Remember? I don't know if you go back and check it out. We might look at it later. Look, uh, he's sharing the rule of that kingdom with the saints. Who are the saints? Therefore, whatever happens under human rule, in the end, the sons of the kingdom of God will rule with the one like the son of man. Therefore, whatever happens in the rule of man, in the end, the sons of the kingdom will rule with the one like the son of man. So you think it might be important to discover 
who that son of man is. Not just because most of us, well, we know who it is, right? You know, we know the end of the story. But what, who would they thought it is, be? How would they have understood it, remember? Because this was written in a time that it would have been there to encourage Daniel and, uh, and those who were in exile. So um, here's our point we want to take. When we're all done, here's some points that we want to take from this. There's more to reality than what we see. And that reality that's more than what we see is worth dying for. This is the point of the chapter. Why? Because you have this great, ferocious, horrible, terrible beast. And what does it say it's going to do? It's going to oppress the saints. But in the end, the saints are going to be ruling with the one of the Son of Man. They will have the eternal kingdom. All right. So this chapter is filled with horror. It only gets worse, but it's filled with hope. Um, the hope of believers everywhere and every time. All right. So we left some questions open, and these are what we're going to try and answer tonight. There's a lot of, there's a lot of difficulties we didn't go through. Um, we asked, what is the son of, what is son of man? Um, what, what does that mean? We know plainly, plainly, son of man simply means human being. It is, it's a well-known phrase to mean human being. It's used over and over. Ezekiel, it's the primary way that Ezekiel is referred to in the, as the prophet Ezekiel. Who, by the way, when did Ezekiel live relative to Daniel? Who remembers this? Same time. That's right. Uh, uh, 24 points for that. That's good. Um, these were contemporaries. And over and over, he's called the Son of Man. So we get to this, one like a Son of Man. Well, it means human being. One like a human being. Okay. Um, so, but why use Son of Man in the vision here? Because Why use that phrase? Why is he coming on the clouds? What, what, what's clouds got to do with it? Um, does this imagery occur anywhere else in the ancient Near East? I remember these were questions we brought up last week. Does the Old Testament have a precedence for this imagery? How does the Old Testament use this imagery in other places? Um, does this imagery occur in Second Temple literature or in Christian literature? So, and how does Jesus use this language? Does Jesus even use it? How does he use it? Why does he use it that way? So, these were all questions we left last week. And we're going to dive into this article by Michael Heiser. Um, and it's called, What's Ugaritic? You can either say Ugaritic or Ugaritic. I might switch between the two. I'm not sure if there's really one that's better. It's probably better to be consistent and stick with it one way or the other. But what has Ugaritic got to do with anything? And then so this was an article I got from, it's a, he, at the time, Dr. Heiser was the academic editor, the scholar in residence for Lagos, um, Lagos Bible Software. Um, he since moved on and started a, the Awakening School of Theology, and now he's passed on and he's with the Lord. Um, and you can get this article if you want to read it yourself uh, in full length of it right there, logos.com forward slash Ugaritic. I highly recommend reading the whole thing. But we're going to make our way through it. I'm going to hit a summary of it. i got a ton of quotes we're going to go through and go, we're going to explain it. And we're going to see how all this ties together and maybe helps answer some of these questions about Daniel. All right. So what is Ugaritic? It's the language of the, of, of the Ugarit. That makes sense. You know, the Ugarit spoke Ugaritic, right? Yeah. You know? That, that, that you now know as much as you knew beforehand when I told you ahead of time. So they were an ancient people in the area of Syria, modern-day Syria. That's where they lived. So they lived in that, the region of Canaan, um, 
Uh, and when we think about Bible study, it's not typically something we think, well, if I want to understand my Bible, why, why don't I study Ugaritic? You know, that's not what we typically think. How many, how many have thought, I want to study Ugaritic to study my Bible? Anybody? Just in case we have, you know, we, you know somebody may have. Um, in the 1920s and 1930s, they discovered these clay tablets. And they deciphered them. And they gave us literally an unparalleled glimpse into the life and the religious worldview of the ancient Israelites. We all of a sudden got a window back in time to see what the religious life was going on at that time. What was the context that they came into and that they were living? It, um, um, I love this. Heiser says, he, he, many would say these are literally as important, if not more important, than the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were huge. These are hugely important. It's the religion of the Ugarit that is especially important for Old Testament scholarship. Um, we are centuries removed, centuries removed from the world of the Bible. And there's a lot of material in the Bible that's pretty obtuse. Would you agree that's kind of hard to understand? You know, so there's some things. So especially when we're looking at it from a 21st century mindset. And when, when, when they wrote the Bible... Um, they weren't writing to a technical society. How many know they were not writing for the scholars and academics of universities today? Okay. That, that, that was not their concern. So they use words, phrases, descriptions that, are, that, that without tools like this that we've discovered are actually meaningless to us today. And we've actually hit a few of them as we've gone through Daniel. All right. So um, there's a matter of all kinds of ideas when you read your Bible that are floating around in Israel from other religions. I may remember the character called Baal in the Bible. Well, where in the world does this Baal worship come from? It's a big deal in the Bible. We're dealing with Baal worship all the time in the Bible. Where does this come from? Um, This Baal worship being embraced by the people of God over and over. The prophets keep coming in. Why are you bowing down to Baal? Why are you embracing Baal worship? Baal simply means master, by the way. You have to wonder why, and this is paraphrasing Elijah in 1 Kings, Israel kept halting between two opinions about who was the true God. You know, that's what Elijah saying. Why do you keep halting between two opinions on who's the true God? This is the whole contest. Well, the ancient literature of, of Ugarit actually helps us put light on these ideas. It helps us not only this, many, many other things. There's like entire libraries, three books uh, of thick of all these parallels between what we're seeing in the scripture and what's going on in the world in the time now here's the thing ugarit um, was destroyed around 1200 bc so what that's telling us is we have something that goes back at least to the time of the bible but even earlier so we've got these these clay tablets that we've discovered are taking us back to a period ancient ancient period of time we're getting back to time source material now that's really important um um because for the longest time there's a lot of things in our bibles that that a lot of scholars were saying well they must have got this from mesopotamia they must have got this from mesopotamia okay what city have we been studying about in the book of daniel that's kind of the center of mesopotamia there babylon well, see, what a lot of scholars have been saying, all this stuff is coming from Babylon. So a lot of stuff we're reading in the Bible, that really didn't get put in there and edited until after they were in Babylon in exile. 
And now we're discovering that a lot of these things they're dealing with actually go back before that. Huh. And so we're getting these source material that's taking us back to the earliest time. Um, so, uh, so these texts show us that the people of Canaan, I mean, who know where the Canaanites are? Who were the Canaanites? You don't have to give me like all the ites and ites and ites and ites. I mean, just in general, who were the people of the Canaan? Who were the Canaanites? So they were the people in the promised land before Israel came along. Okay? They were the people in that area before Israel came along that the Israelites were supposed to go in and take over that land. They had come to the fullness of sin in, in, in a, a um, time for judgment, and the Israelites were to go in and take in. They were the people that were already there. Um, and so these, these, the, these texts are showing us that the people of Canaan living during biblical days were quite literate, a realization that was important since the oldest manuscript evidence for the Hebrew Bible that we have today is about 1,000, it's like 900 to 1,000 A.D. The, the Hebrew text that we have today that we use, because it was copied over and over and over again, and they didn't keep the older copies, the oldest ones we have go, only go back to about 900 to 1,000 A.D., so now we've got source material that's going way, way, way back before that that's pointing us to help us understand. So, um, all right. This was life-changing to open our eyes up to the Bible, Heiser saying this. So what's the backdrop? So if we're going to properly understand anything we read in the text, We've got to read it in context. How many of you ever heard that? Read the Bible, read it in context. Read the Bible, read it in context. What's that mean? Well, we've got to look, what's the text as a whole? What's the text here? What's the text say as a whole? What's the whole Bible say? Uh, what else is going on in society and history and culture? What type of literature am I looking at? All these things. So we take all these different components, and then we try to interpret the Bible. So that's putting it in context. Well, the, these texts are part of the context of the Bible. And that's the point. And we're going to see what we mean by that. So, literary context. Um, first of all, it's important to understand that the biblical writers, how many know they wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Because it doesn't mean they went up to like a Holy Spirit plug, plugged in and started writing. That's not what it's, but that's what most people think, or a lot of people think. Well, I mean, it's like they just kind of plugged in the Holy Spirit, just kind of told them. No. What it means is these were accomplished authors and writers. They were gifted uh, uh, individuals, well-studied, who understood the culture, who understood the, the signs of the times, who understood what was going on. And they sat down with all of the natural gifting and ability and talent God had given them, using all of their ingenuity, and began to craft these, but it was the Holy Spirit motivating them. And as they're writing, the Holy Spirit is giving them understanding, giving them a revelation, inspiring them to put down that which not only applies them, but applies universally to all times and so what they're doing when they're writing and this is really important and i'm going to show you why in a minute when they're writing they're following ordinary forms of literature that they would have found in their day they're following types of literature that would have been the type of their day let me give you an example if 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 a biblical writer is going to sit down he's going to write a covenant treaty 
would it make any sense for that biblical writer to make up a whole new way to write a covenant treaty? Or would it make it much more sense to follow the, the format of a covenant treaty everybody knows about? I mean, look, if I'm going to come down and say, okay, I'm going to have a contract with you today. Let's have a contract. And we're going to have a contract, and I'm going to present you a piece of paper that doesn't look like any contract you've ever seen before. What are you going to say when you look at me? I'm not signing that. That doesn't look like a contract. No contract I've ever seen. No. So when they're writing a covenant uh, covenant uh, treaty, they're following the same formats that they knew and understood at the time. The book of Deuteronomy by itself is literally an ancient Hittite suzerainty treaty. I, you can go by point by point, section by section. It's one of the things that tells us how old it is because we can compare it to the time and other treaties just like it. Yet... It was done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it would have been strange. You know, I like this. Heiser writes this. What kind of covenant treaty is this? Didn't this guy know how to write one? (laughs) That's what they would have said. So you get the same thing throughout all the Bible. When When the Apostle Paul wrote his letters, there was actually a way you wrote letters back then. And when we look at Paul's letters, they follow those formats. Look at Peter's letter, follows the format. Um, so, uh, so, you know, um, the recipients of Paul's letter knew what a letter was supposed to look like. Just as we wouldn't write a letter home, to, I like this quote, just as we wouldn't write a, a letter home to mom and put footnotes in it or jot down a recipe and lace it with legal, legal mumbo jumbo. So the biblical writers wrote using the literary conventions and forms that would have been expected by their audience. All right. Now, stick with me. I know it's like, what in the world does this have to do with Daniel? I promise you the payoff's going to be awesome. I'm going somewhere with this. It's getting there. All right. So they didn't use forms of uh, um, they didn't use forms of contemporary non-inspired literature. They were in, but they were influenced by them. So the forms themselves they were contemporary. They weren't inspired. They just used them for uh, for the means of the inspiration that the Holy Spirit gave them. And we see this all the time today. How many, how many times do we hear messages that are drawing from examples from culture, from society, you know, uh, from um, news, journals, periodicals, television shows, all these things? Well, the biblical writers did the same thing. I don't know how many people know this. Paul, pokes, Paul actually quotes Greek, uh, pagan Greek poets. How many people knew that? Anybody know the verse? In him we live and move and have our being. That's, pagan, that's from pagan Greek literature, and there's others. There's more. He, there's some interesting ways that he refers to some of the Greek wars and things. The psalmist and prophets use all kinds of vocabulary and material from ancient Egypt, from Mesopotamia, from Syria. Um, Jude and Peter, how many know that they are borrowing literature from pseudepigrapha writings? Yeah, I can take you directly to it and show you. This is Peter didn't come up with this originally. He got he got this from First Enoch, and um, and and Jude got this from from these other writings. They're using these examples from the literature they have. So, and here's the thing: when the people in the biblical times were were reading it, they knew that when when uh, Paul is quoting from the Greek poets, that the Greek poets weren't inspired. They knew that. But they also knew the way Paul was using it to make his point was. And they were able to differentiate between the two. And that's important because of how many times I've heard somebody say, well, man, all you need to do is just read the Bible. Just read the Bible and that's just good enough. Well, I'm telling you, if you don't understand these other things, there's a whole lot of things in your Bible you won't understand. And we're going to see one of those tonight. So the religious context. All right. Yeah. 
Pseudepigrapha. Oh, okay, great. Um, there is a, there is a, uh, uh, a, it was a way of writing. Um, it was really popularized during the Second Temple period. The Second Temple period is what's also called the intertestamental period of time, kind of like from when the end of the Old Testament was written till about the time that Jesus and the New Testament was written. That period of time in there we refer to as the Second Temple. There was a tradition in that time for a lot of authors to, 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 take, um, to take a famous person, like Enoch. Enoch's a famous character out of the Bible. And write in the first person as though they were Enoch and write, a st- write down their, their story, their, their apocalypse, their theology. Write this down as though they were that person. And so pseudo, false, epigrapha, writing, doesn't mean it was a false writing. It means it's under a pseudonym. Anybody here an author write with a pseudonym? Like, how about one of, anybody know Mark Twain was a pseudonym? It's not his real name. That, that kind of thing is writing under a pseudonym as though they're this famous person. And so there's a whole slew of this literature that's, that's really, it's a wealth of theological development that, that develops the Jewish theology from the Old Testament into the New Testament. I'll give you one, just one little tiny example. Um, so you get Jesus, he goes into a synagogue and a demon manifests itself in somebody and jesus casts the demon out and nobody there is asking the question theologically where in the world how you know you're casting demons out jesus theologically where did demons come from i don't understand this yet show me in the old testament where that ever happens i'm telling you the whole theology of this develops through these writings in the second temple period and there's some really really good scholarship on this um, the, the roots of it is all there in the Old Testament. If you study the Old Testament in the original language, you'll see it. It's all there. But it's not a developed theology. That we, it's, when we come to the New Testament, it's well developed. It's already there. Nobody's asking questions. It's assumed. Everybody knows it. Where did they develop that? How did that develop? You know, because we don't have it in the scriptures. But we have it in extra biblical literature where they use the Bible to, to, to deep dig down and understand these things and began to live and apply those things out and also tied it to who the identity of who the Messiah would be as well. A lot of it gives it the identity of the Messiah as they're trying to search out who the Messiah or what the Messiah is, who he is, and all that comes out through all of this. So that's just a real short, brief summary. Does that help? It's a starting point, yeah. All right, so the religion of Ugarit and the religion of ancient Israel, they're not the same, okay? They're two different religions. They were not Yahwehistic uh, people, people, but they have incredible or some very striking overlaps. Now we're going to start making our way to Daniel here, okay? So this is going to give us our background to get into Daniel. Now, the name of the ultimate divine authority in Ugarit, guess what it was? If you can look at it right there, you don't have to guess too hard. You just have to read. It's L. His name is L. Okay? Well, guess what one of the names of the God of Israel is? L. One of the names of the God of Israel. Um, there, he erect, there, here it is in Genesis thirty-three twenty. There, he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, God, the God El, the God of Israel. Okay, El, the God of Israel. It's just one of the names. It's it's in there. It's not the most popular name. Obviously, the most popular would be Yahweh that we see, but God has many names throughout the Scripture. Um, the Ugarit El. Guess how he's described in Ugarit religion? An aged God with white hair seated on a throne. Huh. Huh. How's he described? An aged God, an ancient God with white hair seated on a throne. 
Guess what? He had another God who ran things on earth for him. His vizier. His highest executive who took care of running things on earth. You want to know what his name was? Baal. Hmm, now all of a sudden we know who Baal is, where he came from. Now, this character, Baal, is mentioned throughout the Old Testament, as we already talked about, many times in many places. Now, Baal himself, in Ugarit religion, had many titles. How many, how many recognize these titles from other usage? He was the king of gods, king of the gods. He was the most high. He was Prince Baal, Beelzebel, which is morphed into the Lord of Flies, Beelzebub. Um, but it means Zabel uh, um, uh, is a uh, um, uh, uh, master and prince, prince master. And most importantly for our discussion, one of his titles was the rider on the clouds. He was called the rider on the clouds. So here we are in, in this religion that was in the land before Israel it was there. And they've got this whole religious story. They have the great uh, aged one seated on a throne, El. He has a vizier. His name is uh, Baal or Baal. And he's the king of gods. He's the most high. He's Prince Baal. He's the rider on the clouds. Now, Baal's position as the king of gods in Ugarit, who uh, were the neighbor of, of Israel in the north, helps explain the Baal problem in the Old Testament. Um, when Jeroboam took over the kingdom, now for um, for uh, forty three points, who is Jeroboam? Which king in Israel was he? Yes, he is the first king of Israel after Solomon. It would be number four: Saul, David. Um, Solomon, Jeroboam. The first king, he is the first king of the northern kingdom. When God took the ten, king, the ten tribes away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he gave them to Jeroboam. And he told Jeroboam, if you fear me and worship me, I, you will always have a descendant on the throne. And what's Jeroboam do? He doesn't fear God. And he sets up two golden calves and, ha and establishes worship in the northern kingdom um, uh, over these two golden calves. He establishes a form of Baal worship. And it soon began to look like there was no difference, or if there was a difference, they were so close that worshiping one or the other was just theological hair splitting. It got to the point where they really couldn't tell who were worshiping. We're worshiping Baal, we're worshiping Yahweh. Oh, they're so close because he morphed. The religion in the northern kingdom modeled after this to separate and distinguish himself from worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. So now you understand, here's Elijah, and he's trying to prophesy, you need to be following the true God of Israel. But the people at the time, they didn't have a Bible. They, they, what, who would they listen to? They listened to the prophets. Well, if the king is, has got all kinds of false prophets, and if the priests are offering in the wrong place and doing the wrong things, they're just following along uh, with what they're told. When the prophet wasn't around to set the record straight, it was easy just to do what your neighbors are doing. Anybody know that's true? 
especially if your king didn't care or actually preferred it that way. Why did he prefer it? He didn't want the people to go to Jerusalem to worship God because if they did, they'd be crossing down to the southern kingdom. If they crossed down to the southern kingdom, they might go, hey, you know, we used to be down here all together. Why don't we like kind of figure out how to be all together again? And then they might take me out of the throne. See, completely out of fear, absolutely no faith. All right. So given this state of affairs, it's not surprising that sometimes in the course of their preaching and writing, the prophets counted on familiarity with Baal to make their case that it was Yahweh, not Baal, who was the heavenly king. Let me say that again. What the prophets would do is they would take how people were familiar with Baal, and they would communicate what they thought was Baal language in Yahweh language to say, he's the, Baal is the imposter imposter Yahweh's the real thing this one you think's the king of gods that's Yahweh this one you think's the most high that's Yahweh this one you think's the 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 uh, uh, prince of princes that's Yahweh the master of all that's Yahweh the one you think's the rider on the clouds I'm getting ahead of myself here we know this is the case since the old testament since certain old testament books actually quote from Ugaritic religious texts most notably, the one, the, the one that modern scholars have called the Baal Cycle. Okay, so there's this thing called the Baal Cycle. This is going to get interesting because we're going to come into Daniel with this. We're, we're narrowing it down here. So the Baal Cycle would give Baal credit for things like sending rain and making crops grow. You see, we want rain. We want the crops to grow. Baal did it. Baal did it. That's who did it. Now, when you live in Israel and there's no rivers... What are you dependent on? The rains. The early rains and the latter rains. You're dependent on these things. It's why part of the Sukkot feast, there's this whole water libation ceremony that's a part of it. Thanking God for water and, and praying for the next year's crops and all this. So, but the prophets, what they would do is they say, no, that's Yahweh who's doing those things. So, the, so you, this brings us to this showdown. Who knows what the showdown at Mount Carmel? Who remembers the showdown at Mount Carmel? So Mount Carmel is what, guess where it is? It's way up in the northeast, right next to where the people of Ugarit were from. That's where it is. That's where Mount Carmel is. Northwest, sorry, way up in the northwest. It's right up in that re- region. And what does Elijah do? He says, go get 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah and meet me up on top of that mountain. We're going to see who has what fire we come to daniel and we open up what's the difference between el and yahweh fire they're both ancient days they both have thrones yahweh has fire interesting huh Hmm? all right so what's the one thing god withheld for the three for three years before this showdown rain What's the one thing that Baal was known for? Rain. What's God demonstrating to Israel? He wasn't just using drought as a way and, hey, God, hey, guys, you need to start worshiping me. You're not getting this right. No. He's actually showing how impotent and powerless their paganism is. You're depending on him. You call him as the one that has the power for rain. Guess who really does? You want, okay, you want to trust him for rain? Fine. Here's what my word is. No rain. See how well you do. And then three years later, he says, now have them all show up. Let's have a showdown. Let's, not do, let's do this person to person. Which God won? 
Yahweh. So there's a um, there's a uh, uh, um, Sunday school class, and they're they're talking to the kids, and so uh, the, the the teacher is explaining what happened up on Mount Carmel after the after the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah spent hours and hours and hours, and no fire comes. Elijah comes over to his, and he digs this big old pit around his sacrifice, and so. Um, he, he puts the stones, he puts the sacrifice, the, the wood on top of it, and he puts the sacrifice on top of that, and he digs this pit, and he dumps water, and he dumps more water, and he dumps more water, and he keeps dumping water on this until water flows down, fills up the pits, and actually runs out, so it's super saturated with water. And so, you know, this is all before God, then, then Elijah calls on God, and God strikes it with fire from heaven and the the sacrifice is struck the wood is struck the stones are struck the dirt is struck all the water it's all gone it's like a crater left bam gone completely and and so the teacher looks at the kids and says to the kids why did elijah put all that water on the sacrifice one little kid raises his hand says, i know why why is that because god likes gravy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So God won in glorious fashion. So the Bible can only be fully understood when we put it in its proper context. So that's not to say the Bible is no longer re- relevant in our modern world. This is important. I'm not saying that the Bible only meant something then. But what I'm saying is when you get this proper context and you understand it, then you can give it proper application. It's written for our benefit. It's written for the benefit of future generations. But it was neither written by this generation nor for this generation as the immediate intended audience. Do you catch that? It was written for our benefit. It was written for those in the future. But it wasn't written by our generation or our generation as the immediate intended audience. So when we get... When we, when we can go back to this ancient record and we can understand it then and we can put it in its original context, it can give us illumination um, for, for, for us who are completely removed from the culture. We, you know, it's like, like we're sitting here, I scratch, you know, how many times have we read the Bible, scratch our head and think, why can't they get over this bell thing, man? I don't understand it. Don't you see how much pain it's causing them? But when you see how it's put in this context, they say sometimes they just plain old get confused and the king's not helping it. All right, so now we're going to come to the cloud rider. Uh huh. He wasn't an Egyptian god, um, um, so in the sense, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. The there's clear. Uh, there's clear knowledge that the cultures of the day interacted, and they were familiar with one another's cultures. And there's a lot of things in the Bible that even show that. So um, they're not so siloed as we might think they are. There was a lot of trading and um, uh, and, and commerce and things going on. In fact, and here's here's one simple way you would know that. Even uh, 50, 60 years afterwards, all of the Canaanites were petrified of the God of Israel who conquered Egypt and opened the Red Sea. Yet they're, they're up here and they're over here. How'd they know all that? 
Well, they knew full well everything that happened and went on. And in fact, you go a few hundred years later and you get into Samuel when Samuel's judging. And, and all of a sudden, the, the Israelites go get the ark. And they're going to bring the ark to go into battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines go, oh, that's the God that destroyed the Egyptians several hundred years ago. Oh, no, we don't want that God down here. So these things were well known among all the peoples. They knew, they knew what was going on where. They meant, you know... Um, so uh, they would not necessarily have honored Baal as their God. And this is important. Why? Because gods were geographical. They honored the gods of their land. Gods were geographical. And so um, this is when you could see this in Judges, when, Ju- when, when they call on Jephthah because the Moabites came and uh, began to conquer the, um, the, the, the eastern northeastern corner on the, the 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 east side of the jordan where reuben gad and the half tribe of manasseh were and they begin to move into that land and jim Je- Je- what does jephthah say to him say look your god hamash he gave you your land you go back down there to your god hamash you're up in the land yahweh gave to us get out before i kick you out so the gods were geographical you're on the geography of our god this is why the Israelites were so shocked in Daniel that God, that, because, wait a minute, you allowed a, a, a follower of Marduk to come down and conquer your temple, God? How could you do that? And this is one of the objections Ezekiel deals with in his book and his prophecies. Like, you think just because God has put his name on it, he's not going to bring judgment? He just, he, he, his word is greater than the land. And he's going to prove that. So, yeah, they would have been familiar. All right, Cloud Rider. This is, this is key now. Throughout the Ugaritic text, as we said, Baal's repeatedly called the one who rides on the clouds or the one who mounts the clouds. All right? So this description is recognized. It's, an, it's actually an official title of Baal. Um, there is no angel. There is no lesser being that bore that title. No one, no one of a lesser being had that title. As such... Everyone in Israel who had heard this title associated it with a deity, not with a man or an angel. That's important. When they heard the title, Rider on the Cloud, they would have never associated that with a, with a, a man or an angel. So part of the literary strategy of the Israel prophets was to take this well-known title and give that title to Yahweh in some way. This is one of the things, it's called a polemic response. Have you ever heard of a polemic response? A polemic response would be, um, uh, we see it all the time. I'm not a good example. So someone would make an argument that this is the way things are. A polemic response was somebody would stand up, and everybody knows what the argument is. Everybody already knows what it is. We all know the points. Somebody else would stand up and point for point say, um, the truth is this, 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 and this. And every one of my points is refuting someone else's. Now, I may not have to, if we all know the points, I don't have to say, well, when they said this, I'm refuting with this. When they said that, I'm re-, they wouldn't have to say that. We all know it. All that we would say is the truth is this, 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 and they would know we're immediately refuting all those points. Well, the prophets do this over and over again. The prophets are doing this. You know, the, the, the Ugaritic religion, the Baal religion says this and this and this, and, and the prophets say, no, Yahweh is this, 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 this. When will you get it in here? It's Yahweh. Well, when, better yet, when will you get it in here? All right. So, Yahweh bears this title in several places. I'm going to show you just a few. 
Here's Isaiah 19. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Wait a minute, I thought that was Baal. No, Baal's not the rider of clouds. It's, 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 I mean, it is a total insult to Baal religion. They're taking this holy title of their God and totally obfuscating. Say, no, he's an imposter. Yahweh's the one riding on the clouds coming to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Here it is in Deuteronomy. There is none like God, O Yeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. They're just telling you right out. There is none like, that's a total polemic response. That Baal guy, there is none like Yahweh. He's the true rider on the clouds. He's the true master of the heavens. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, Psalm 68, Psalm 104. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. So I'll give you another. Well, I'll just keep going. All right. So for a faithful Israelite then, there is only one God who rode on the clouds, Yahweh. So keep that in mind. For a faithful Israelite, over and over in the scripture, there's only one God who rode on the clouds, Yahweh. Only one God who rode on the clouds. Not Baal, Yahweh. Until we get to Daniel 7. All of a sudden, we get this scene. Now, it's interesting. We know the scene, right? All of a sudden, we just read it last week. The rider of the clouds comes, and he is presented to Yahweh, the Ancient of Days. And he's this judge who now this beast is destroyed, and to him is given a kingdom. And it's interpreted that that kingdom goes not only to him, but all those who are the holy ones who are connected with him. All of a sudden, there is a twist, a shift, something different Remember I told you, there's three levels of theology. The first one is God is sovereign. The second one is God cares for his people. The third is theology through what? Story. This is a detail in the story that changes. It causes us to put our antennas up. Huh, why is he doing it this way? What is he trying to communicate? What's happening here? And he's using this revelatory language, this revelatory style, this apocalyptic style that what? Discloses that which is uh, spiritual, is becoming open for us to see. And all of a sudden, this one who is only named anywhere else in the Bible as Yahweh riding on the clouds is one like a son of man. Huh. Something that should make you say, huh. Now, we all know that, but there's an even bigger context going on here. And they would have known this and understood this. And so, we're going to look at this parallel. There's this thing called the Baal cycle, and this is in the Ugaritic religion. In the Baal cycle, you have El. We already talked about the Ugaritic El. He's the aged high God. He's the ultimate sovereign in the council. He is seated on a throne. When we come to Daniel 7, what's the language that's used? The ancient of days, the God of Israel, is seated on the fiery wheeled throne. Like the Ugaritic El, he is white-haired and aged, ancient. It's drawing directly from this picture, yet it's saying, that's not the real picture, here's the real one. They move to the second part of the cycle. El 
bestows kingship upon the god Baal, the cloud rider, after Baal defeats the god of Yam in battle. In the Ugarit religion, El, Baal goes out and defeats this god Yam. After Yam is defeated, after Yam is defeated, he is made king over, uh, over um, uh, as the cloud rider. Baal the cloud rider is made king because he's defeated him in battle. Now take, take a look at what happens in Daniel 7. Yahweh El, the Ancient of Days, bestows kingship upon the Son of Man who rides the clouds after the beast from the sea. Guess what the word for sea is? Yama is destroyed. It's a direct illusion. Baal defeats Yam? No. This one like the Son of Man defeats this great beast who speaks arrogantly and proudly against Yahweh and destroys him. And he's the true cloud rider. He's the true stormer of the chaotic sea. And we haven't even really gotten into the imagery of the chaotic sea. But he's the one who conquers Yama. Finally, that's not the end. Baal is the king of the gods and is El's vizier. His rule is everlasting. What does it say in Daniel 7? The Son of Man is given everlasting dominion over the nations. He rules at the right hand of God. Tell me that's not cool. What, what you've got is you've got a direct polemic response. Now, why is this going on at this place? Why are the Israelites in Babylon? For worshiping false gods. So they take the story of the false gods and saying these that you're worshiping are wrong. No, it is the true God and it is his his uh, um, um, uh, vizier, his son, one like a son of man, who we should be worshiping. And, the, Dan, and it's all coming out in this vision that Daniel's having. All right, there's more. That, wait, but wait, that's not all. <laughs> so we got these obvious parallels, right? The only time, the only time in the Old Testament where there is a second personage other than Yahweh that's described as coming with or upon the clouds. The only time. Only time. He's also referred to, it says, when everyone shall serve him. Um, that word serve actually is used everywhere else. The, 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 Hebrew, the, um, the Hebrew related word is used for, for worship of Yahweh only. So not only is he the only one who rides on the clouds, this is the only person that rides on the clouds besides Yahweh. He's the only one that's worshipped beside Yahweh. Daniel's intent to describe this son of man with a title reserved only for Yahweh was clear by virtue of how the scene followed the Baal literature. And so the story is trying to tell us something. This is theology through story. In other words, rather than sitting down and giving us a thesis, well, okay, now you have Yahweh and you have this second power who is like unto Yahweh. Has their, their one. They don't do that. They tell a story and they give you the theology from it. And how do you understand the story? Because it's like other stories you already knew. You already have a background for it. So it makes sense to you. Um, the literary cycle whose central character, uh, um, Bell, held the, the cloud rider title. The Jewish audience reading Daniel understood these implications. They understood it when they're reading this. They knew it. It was their background. It was their history. The prophet Daniel was describing a second power in heaven. A second being at the level of Yahweh to whom Yahweh himself granted authority. They would have understood this. Yahweh, there's a second being in heaven who is the level of authority of Yahweh. It's being granted to him. 
Notice he is standing in the presence of Yahweh as he comes to him, not bowing. Although we naturally think of the idea of a Godhead as distinctly Christian. How many, you know, you know, the Trinitarian idea, the Godhead, that's a Christian idea, right? We've got evidence right here that the seeds of that is actually in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I'm telling you, if we had time, I could show you a whole lot more seeds. <laughs> There's a whole lot more. This is just one small seed right here that we're looking at. It's no accident that Jewish theological writing during the intertestamental period um, is filled with references to the second power in heaven and attempts to figure out how to articulate what is going on in heaven in light of monotheism. There's only one God. There's only one God, yet there are these two powers. And in fact, there's, there's even language in which they introduce the third. But that's beyond the scope of tonight. This is just one of the ways that they're communicating this theology through the story that this story comes out to us. Now, Jewish writers in this, during the Second Temple period, they would had all kinds of speculation as to who this second God was. Was it an archangel? Was it Gabriel? Um, was it, was it um, Abraham? Was it Moses? For us, it's obvious. It's obvious who it is, right? Who is it? Yeah, it's Jesus. It's Yeshua. Now, it is well known one of Jesus' favorite title for himself was what? Son of Man. He calls himself Son of Man over and over and over again. Now, it means two things. He is referencing his humanity. He enjoyed being human. But he's also referencing this deity figure to whom all authority was given. Now, there's a punchline coming here. That latter usage, this all authority, is perfectly evident and clear when we get to Matthew 26. We set the scene up. They came in the middle of the night. He's, at, uh, he's in the garden, and he's about to be arrested. They arrest him, and they take him in the middle of the night to a kangaroo court, and they take him before Caiaphas, and, they're on, and he's on trial. Um, now, Caiaphas knew his Old Testament. He knew all these illusions and everything that we're talking about. We might not have known all this that we just talked about, but Caiaphas did. He knew exactly all these things. Um, so finally, the Sanhedrin says straight to Jesus, says, look, we're done at bringing all these witnesses in trying to prove us. Why don't you tell us out of your lips, out of your mouth, exactly who you are? This is in Matthew 26. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now I want to, descri- I want to explain that first. That's an idiomatic phrase. For us, that seems weak. It's like, well, you said it, not me. That's not what he means. What the, what, what the saying means is the same way if we, say, if we were to say, you said it, bud. Okay? Just like you said, bud, that's what it means. That's the idiom there. So he's being very, to us it seems a little veiled because it's an idiom. And so we, so we don't understand the, the, the impact of the idiom. But if he would have put it in the language of, you said it, bud, we would have, we would have felt the, 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 the energy of it, the power of it. But then he says something else to bring it home. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and what? Coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Now, if everything I've been telling you is not true, Caiaphas is going, well, who's that son of man? What does that mean? You know, why do I have to do that? Or what does Caiaphas actually say? By quoting this passage, Jesus was making an overt, unmistakable claim to be deity. And he, in fact, was the one who rides on the clouds. That this is no exaggerated interpretation is evident by Caiaphas' reaction. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Yeah, but he knew what it meant to say the one like the Son of Man was one who was calling himself like Yahweh. One who was saying he could only do what Yahweh would do. And they did not want to believe this could only be, this could only be blasphemous if, um, if somebody was actually claiming to be the rider on the clouds. And they understood that rider on the clouds to be equivalent to Yahweh. Otherwise, it wouldn't be blasphemous. The idea may have been acceptable to Jews at the time, but it was simply intolerable that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, would claim to be the incarnation of that second power of heaven. So, uh, why is this important? Because how many of us have read our Bible and we get to that phrase, he says, be clear, be absolutely clear, tell us for a fact who you are, and Jesus uses that phrase, and all of us go, well, I don't know any more about what he said beforehand, I did afterwards. Right around the class, what's that? I thought he said, be clear. Why didn't he just come right out and say yes? He was saying it even more clear if you understood the context. When you don't understand the context, that's when you're scratching your head going, what in the world's going on? But when you're in that context, it was so clear, Caiaphas rips, look, to rip the high priest's clothes, that was an egregious act in and of itself an egregious act to do that so what most of us think is an odd answer even a deliberate deflection of Caiaphas demand is exactly the opposite Jesus could not have been more blunt he was the second deity presented here the second power of heaven in Daniel 7 the Jews of the first century understood this well why because they knew their Bible the idea of a Godhead was not a Christian innovation. It wasn't something that, came, that Christians came up with several hundred years later. It is rooted in Israelite religion and Jewish theology and was, here's the thing, and this is, this is what you can actually go back and find in early Jewish literature. It was totally acceptable as doctrine for Jews until the second century. So you get in the second century, um, when in response to the worship of Jesus uh, by Jews who were converting, who were following uh, um, Jesus as their Messiah, the rabbis declared that the second power I, uh, idea was heresy for faithful Jews. They didn't declare it till then, till after that. So, who would have suspected we're able to see the beginnings of the doctrine of the Godhead right here in the Hebrew Bible? But by what? Because we understand the context of what's going on. How did we get that? Because we picked up on this thing called Ugaritic literature, and it helped us to interpret the Bible. Or we were reading what somebody picked up on it. I, I, you follow? All right. Who thinks that's cool? Who understands a little bit more about how the Bible is put together? Now, why, why do I want to take the time to go through all Because I could have just given you the punchline right from the beginning, saved us a whole lot of time. Why, why would I do that? Um, I read something the other day. 
that there's this there's this understanding with the scriptures. There's, some, there's a big big old fancy word, big old fancy word. It's called per, per, ah, I can't even say it, perspicuity. And what it means is that the scriptures are clear. And what what that means is anybody with reasonable understanding of, of the language can sit down and read through the Bible and, and get the message of salvation out of the Bible. You don't have to be you know, a, 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 an academic or a theological wizard to get that. You, 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 can, you can read through the Gospels. How many times I know people who have just read, you know, I know many um, uh, Jews who have picked up Isaiah 53, read Isaiah 53, said, so, oh, my goodness, yeah, uh, and said, that's, that's, wait a minute, that's not in the New Testament? That's in the Old? How'd that get there? You know, who changed my Old Testament or my Hebrew Scriptures? And then so there's the message of the Gospel that's very clear. However, if I want to understand this inspired, authoritative instruction that, I, that, that is absolutely life necessary for me to apply to my life, for us to apply in community, for us to live out in this world, it's going to take a little bit more than devotional reading. Now, not a single one of us here who has any hobbies at all has one problem looking up YouTube videos, digging down and studying and trying to get more information on those subjects we're interested in. And if we're interested in it, we are digging down. We're going down, you know, maybe it's a sport or maybe it's something. Man, we're watching how other people do it. We're learning all the tricks. We're learning. We want to go try that. We want to, we want to dig in. Well, wait a minute, you know, I mean, you can't just like somebody tell you and you got it and that's not good enough. I mean, you just can't, you know, like spend five minutes reading about it and that's sufficient. You got to actually, you know, spend some time actually really, you know, not, and we do it. We love it. This author said this. He says, I wish we would. He says, got to hear me right in how I'm saying this. He says, I wish we would treat our Bible like a hobby. He says, look, it's not. I don't mean that it's a hobby. You know, far that it, far from it being. But if we treated it like we treated our hobbies, we'd spend more time actually getting commentaries and getting uh, resources and doing those things that would help us to dig down and really explore these things and discover it and how do we live it and apply it in our lives, just like we do all the other things we're interested in. And so that's why I spent some time because this doesn't just apply to what we're doing here in Daniel 7. And there's a lot more in Daniel 7 we could do this with. And we could straight, straight to the punchline. Who are these saints? What's that got to do with us? It has everything to do with us. And yet not. It's actually going to come up again in the next chapter. We could spend weeks just in staying here doing this. But I want to wet your whistle to be able to, to look up these, uh, uh, you know, search Daniel 7, chapter, um, Daniel 7, 7. Who is this fierce beast? And look at all the different things that are out there on it and try to dig down a little bit and, and find, find these sources. So anyway, there you go. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you that you have preserved this word, for, miraculously preserved this word for us. Father, may we, may we treat it so. May we treat it so. May we hunger for more. May we see the, 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 the incredible ways in which these things are revealing who you are. That we could be revealers of who you are. We could be your imagers. Your ambassadors, your prophets in our day, 
those who bring your word and speak your word and live your word. We bless you, Lord. We thank you and pray that it wouldn't be simply about what we heard in here, but what we take out the door with us. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. All right, let me know when we're turned off.